Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17, and if you're able, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to see a prophet, a widow, and a dead son raised to life. It's a privilege to open up God's Word, His inerrant, inspired, infallible Word. We're going to read all of 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you there. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as he was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for you, yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you that it is truth. Lord, it is truth we need. Lord, we desperately need you and your truth to lead us and guide us, to change us, 
And Lord, we ask that you would have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're going to see today a prophet, a widow, and a dead son raised to life. First, I have a couple questions that sets the stage a little bit and see where we're going here. But first of all, do you ever feel like you have no strength or no resources or no status in the world? You're like, you know, little old me, I, I'm at the bottom rung of society's ladder. No prospects, no chance of any progress in the near future. You're, you're just, you're, you're, you're grieving. You're, maybe you grieve in sadness, maybe you grieve in loneliness, and your soul is burdened. Is that you? Quite possibly, you might be on the other end of the spectrum, though that you think you're pretty special stuff and that you are quite impressed with your own accomplishments and that you are capable and able and efficient and effective and successful and you have worked hard and you have the results to show for it. And maybe your soul uh, today is, is light. Maybe you don't have a burden on your soul or maybe you're not even thinking about your soul. But either way, I'm just here to tell you that God has something to say to you in 1 Kings 17, and it might be startling, and it might be surprising, so just be ready for anything, okay? Now, the point here in this passage is simple. God is God over all. God is God over all. And as such, he displays his power so that we would depend on his provision and delight in him. Now, there is not just a prophet, a widow, and a dead son raised to life in this story. It's not a bait and switch, but there is one other character. There is also a wicked king in play. You've got to have the, the antagonist, right? The wicked king. Now, we are airlifted ourselves into 1 Kings 17 today. I've just recently finished preaching through Habakkuk, verse by verse. We did Acts, verse by verse. In, in June, we're going to start Romans, verse by verse. But today, we're just landing right here on this chapter. And so let me set the context for you a little bit. You know, like when we were in Habakkuk, we were in like 600 B.C., right? Well, this is further back. This is 900 B.C. or so. And it begins, 1 Kings begins with the death of King David and the reign of his son Solomon. And at the end of his life, Solomon has some unfaithfulness issues. And so it, it really kind of set the stage for some apostasy to happen amongst the people of God. And there was a revolt, Rehoboam revolted, and the kingdom became divided. So at this point in time, you've got uh, the northern tribes known as Israel and the southern tribes known as Judah. And mostly evil kings. And so what you've got is a theocracy. God is God over all, but there's human depravity running amok. And this is really a microcosm of human existence, isn't it? This is the way it is. God is Lord over all, but mankind does not acknowledge God. So this is pretty much the context quickly. And you do see a prophet first and foremost. Verse 1, it starts with Elijah. His name means the Lord is God. So 
His ministry matches his name. And he's sent by God to confront idolatry and to declare to Israel that God is God over all, and there is no other. He is the one true God, and this is, this is what Elijah's going to do. Elijah is the Tishbite. He's from Tishbe in Gilead. Um, lived in a town called Tishbe, east of the Jordan River, in the vicinity of the Jabbok River. But I really love how Elijah is introduced. He just shows up on the scene. No fanfare, just there he is, uh, Elijah. First appearance of Elijah in the Bible. So look with me at verse 1. He says to Ahab, there's your wicked king, who is providing uh, the backdrop of a crucial storyline here, running as really a dangerous riptide, a dangerous undercurrent throughout this whole narrative. Ahab, probably no surprise here, very wicked king in Israel, he's introduced in chapter 16. So verses 29 to 33, last part of that chapter, introduces Ahab. It goes like this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Amri, began to reign over Israel. So he's reigning over the northern tribes, and Ahab reigned 22 years in Samaria. And here's the key right here. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was evil. More than all that were before him. He was the worst yet. And so he, does, he did all sorts of bad things. Um, he, he walked in all the sins that the worst kings had done. And he did worse. He served the false god Baal. He worshipped him. He erected an altar to Baal in a in a house of Baal that he built in Samaria. So he's doing all sorts of pagan things, and he made Asherah, he made false gods, and it says that he did more to provoke God to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. Here he is leading Israel on this horrendous downward spiral of, of idolatry, made the sins of his forefathers uh, seem mild. And then there's his wife. Now his wife, is Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, who was also a very evil man. And his wife was the one that tried to, to destroy all the prophets of God. Okay, so you got Ahab and Jezebel going to be chasing down Elijah. Back to Ahab for a moment. He, he was a dangerous perpetrator of evil, and he lacked moral fiber. He was unrighteous, all that, kind of like the... Uh, you know, Kim Jong-un of his day. He was living it up while people perished. He was a warrior. He was more victorious than Solomon, but success made him greedy. He's the man that wanted the vineyard of someone else. And uh, you, go back, you go forward a couple chapters into 1 Kings 21, and Naboth's vineyard is in Ahab's sights. He wants it. Here's the king, he's got all this stuff, but he wants this one vineyard, and he's going to do anything he can to get it. But he goes to Naboth, and he says, I'm going to buy your vineyard, and I'll give you this much money. Offers him a fair price. Naboth says, you know, I want to keep it in the family. I don't want to sell. Nothing wrong with that. Ahab goes home, curls up in a fetal position, and pouts like a little spoiled child, and, and then tells his wife, and his wife, Jezebel, plans Naboth's death to get the land. This is how evil they were. His doom was foretold, along with Jezebel's, by Elijah in 1 Kings 21. He says, I'm going to make your house like the house of Jeroboam. It's not going to last. 
like the house of Basha, not going to last, for the anger to which you provoked me because you made Israel sin. Here's what he said of Jezebel. The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Okay, so I don't think you're seeing them in heaven. Now, these are the dark days in which God rose up Elijah. He was a man zealous for the glory of God. I love what Matthew Henry said about him. He says, never was Israel so blessed with a good prophet as when it was plagued with a bad king. Never was a king so bold to sin as Ahab. Never was a prophet so bold to reprove and threaten than Elijah, whose story begins in this chapter and is full of wonders. Scarcely any part of the Old Testament history shines brighter than this history of the spirit and power of Elijah. He only of all the prophets had the honor of Enoch, the first prophet, to be translated that he should not see death and the honor of Moses, the great prophet, to attend our Savior in his transfiguration. Other prophets prophesied and wrote. He prophesied and acted. He wrote nothing. And here you have it, the very first verse of this chapter. Elijah confronts Ahab with a serious message. Look at verse 1 with me. Here's what he said to Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he basically says it's not going to rain. You're going to have a drought, which means you'll have a famine as well. No dew or rain. They needed the autumn and spring rains in Israel for their crops. They needed the summer dew uh, that was necessary. And, and this is a judgment from God on his people. God had promised his people that if you go after false gods, I'm going to send famine. I'm going to send drought. And so um, this is the word that God gives him to give. And, and here's the thing. Every miracle that God does through Elijah is combating some false worship and belief about Baal. So in this situation, Baal's devotees credited him with providing rain and fertility. In fact, archaeologists have found depictions of Baal holding a thunderbolt in his hand. But the drought and the subsequent famine is going to show that Baal is powerless against God. He can't do anything. And, and drought was not just God's judgment here. It was basically, it's like a chess game kind of, first move in, in a contest confirming God's power over Baal. So the miracles God is going to do here, when the first is no rain, they're a testimony to his power. Every one of them directed at some pagan belief about Baal. And so to drive the message home, God says to Elijah, you go out and hide. Look at verse 2. He's sending him into seclusion. The word of the Lord came to him. Verse 3, go and turn eastward and hide. Get out of town because Ahab and Jezebel are going to try to kill you. So he's going to be safe from Ahab and Jezebel's wrath. He hides by the command of God. Ahab's going to go on this frantic search for him. It's going to be foiled. Elijah's absence will be living testimony of the judgment of God. God would prepare Elijah in a time of solitude. Some of you look at me and you say, you're such a people person. You probably want to be with people all the time. I'm like, no, actually... I am a people person, I get energized by people, but I must have solitude. I must have time alone if I'm going to be any good with people. And here God is putting uh, Elijah into solitude, 
And what's he going to do during that time? He's going to prepare Elijah in this time of solitude, and he's going to prep him for a showdown that's happening in the next chapter that happens at Mount Carmel, when he basically stands alone against all the prophets of Baal. Verse 3 goes by the brook Kareth, east of the Jordan. It's a seasonal brook. It was active during the rainy season. It was dry during the hot weather. And verse 4, God says, you're going to drink from the brook. Good water. And, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So God is promising two supplies to him in his seclusion. Drinking from a brook and dining with delivery from birds. Now, ravens were scavengers. They're probably bringing roadkill, maybe. Or maybe they're the Bible blue apron. I don't know. Um, and verse 5 says he did according to, the, to God's word. He obeys. That's key here. He obeys the word of God. He walks 15 miles from Jezreel eastward to the Jordan River. In verse 5, he goes and lives by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and he's all alone. He's relying 100% on God's provision. He's fed by birds delivering food. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and evening. So he eats twice a day, or maybe they give him so much that he gets lunch too. But it's a supernatural provision, much like the manna and the quail during the wilderness wanderings. Exodus 16. And then verse 7, after a while the brook dries up. Yes, it was going to dry up. It was due to the drought. No rain. So there you have, there you got the prophet, first of all, the man of God, and next you see the widow. He runs into a widow. Look at verse 8. Word of God comes to him and says, verse 9, go to Zarephath, belonging to Sidon, and stay there. Now, this is a town on the Mediterranean coast, about seven miles south of Sidon, between Tyre and Sidon, in Phoenicia. This is key. This is the place of the stronghold of the cult of, to Baal that, that Ahab imported into Israel. And so God is sending Elijah into territory controlled by Ahab's father-in-law, Ethbaal. And the power of God is now going to be displayed in the very area that Baal is being worshipped. This is a hotbed of Baal worship here. And God is challenging Baal on his home turf. This false god, by the way. He's challenging the followers of Baal because Baal's a false god. He says to Elijah, I have commanded a widow to feed you. So first birds are feeding him, and now a widow with no resources is going to feed him. I love God's provision, don't you? I love how, how God will just, just out of nowhere bring you what you need. Now, Jesus himself referred to, to Elijah at Zarephath. In fact, if you want to go over to Luke 4, you can see that, just a Brief aside here, I just want you to see what, what Jesus said about this situation. He was using this situation when he told the people that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. So Luke 4, and in verse 24 to 30, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. That's how long. And a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Just using this as an example, but I love how the Bible just ties in with, with itself. 
But isn't it ironic that, that Elijah would find refuge in Phoenicia in a pagan place while fleeing Ahab, who's the primary promoter of false Phoenician gods who should have been worshiping the, the one true God? And so verse 10, he goes to Zarephath. And he gets to the gate of the city. He runs into this widow and she's gathering sticks. So like if you're out camping and you're getting sticks for a fire, right? Well, she's gathering sticks. And, and he asks her for some water to drink. Verse 11, he also says, hey, can you bring me some bread? And, and she says in verse 12, now she's a Gentile, and she says, as your God lives, I have nothing. I, I just have a handful of flour and a little oil left in a jug. That's it. And then she says the saddest words to him. He sa she says, I'm about to prepare what I have left so that me and my son can eat it and then die. This is their final you know, famine meal. And, and it's just it's sad. It's a sad situation. This, this widow had no one to care for her, living with her son all alone. And it's just a reminder to me, just as a brief aside here, a reminder that the church is to care for widows with no family to care for them. The instructions uh, are pretty clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, and then verse 8, but it basically tells us to honor widows who are truly widows. That if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But what you see is the church's duty is to care for believing widows who have no one. And here's a situation here where this widow has no one and she's about to just, you know, finish up the last food they've got and then they're just going to give up and die. They have no other hope. They're in a famine. They're in, they're in the midst of drought and And Elijah says, verse 13, notable. He says, don't fear. Don't fear, he says. Just, just make me a little cake of bread and, and bring it to me and then make one for you and your son. And, and then he's going to speak an authoritative word from God. Look at verse 14. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel's God. So now, you know, the clouds are parting and God is speaking. And here's what God says. The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain. Now, I think around this point, there's about, been about six months of famine. So basically, they're going to have three more years of plenty, not want. This is going to be a miracle from God. And so verse 15, she does as he says, which is, which is notable as well. She's like, you know, Baal's not helping me. Maybe God can. And God does a miracle. And they eat for many days. And verse 16 tells us the flour and the oil didn't run out. Now, you're not surprised, are you? God can do anything he wants. And if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. God's provision is so amazing. And then, more sadness. Look at verse 17. Now you've got a dead son. This is not because they ran out of food. 
is after this, they're, they're eating well. They're, they have provision from God. And then her son gets so sick, he dies. We don't know how he dies. In verse 18, she goes to Elijah, and her first reaction is to think, God is punishing me for my sins. She comes to Elijah, the man of God, the representative of God, and says, what do you have against me? Have you come to bring my sin to my remembrance and cause my son's death? It was a common assumption in those days that suffering and sin were, were connected. A lot of people think that today as well. You that are suffering might ask, what did I do to deserve this? Was it something I did in my past? Was it those things I tried to cover up and now God's paying me back? What is it? And I just think you need to keep Job in mind. Now Job's friends, in, in Job's extreme suffering, Job's friends accuse him of sin and they say, what you did wrong brought this on you. Now that wasn't true. And God overturned that reasoning, made it really clear. Jesus rejected this line of reasoning when, when his disciples brought it to him. In John chapter 9, there's a context of a man born blind, and the disciples say, by the way, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? They, they just fully figured that somebody did something wrong, and they're getting paid back for it. And they were wrong. Jesus made it really clear. The Bible does not uh, assume a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Not your specific sin to your specific suffering. Sure, all suffering is due to the fall. But here you've got people tying things together and the widow says, well, I guess it's because I've sinned. My son died. God leaves room for suffering which is undeserved from a human point of view. So verse 19, Elijah says, give me your son, and what a sad scene. He's carrying this dead boy upstairs to, to his room, Elijah's room, and puts him on a bed, and, and then he does something very significant. He prays. You're like, he's not going to do CPR? No, he's going to pray. Now, he looks like he did some kind of Old Testament CPR. But first he, he cries out to God, verse 20, Oh Lord my God, how, have you brought calamity upon this widow that I'm staying with by killing her son? And then verse 21 does something that seems kind of odd. I guess it was you know, CPR for those days. He stretches himself on the child three times. Now, let me just stop for a second. Don't get weird about the Bible and try to make it say things it doesn't say. This is not... Three times, once for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not a grace brethren thing here, okay? <laughs> this is not, you know, for love, joy, and peace. Or There's all sorts of people have said the, the three stands for, you know, all this stuff. And No, no he, just, he just did this. That, that was a sign of completeness. But here, verse 23, verse 23, um, the child comes back to life and Elijah takes the child to the mother because he, he stretches himself on the child and then he cries out to God. He's trusting God and I love his prayer. Bring him back to life, God. You know, a lot of us think that if we want something really big, we gotta have a really long prayer and it, we gotta make it a doozy. We gotta make it a good one. We gotta like 
bring out all the bells and whistles, okay? Pull out all the stops. And I love the fact that God's teaching us here that just pray simply because it's God's power, not yours. The power's not in your prayer. The power's in God who's hearing your prayer. And so... God listens to Elijah, verse 22. The child comes back to life, verse 23. I mean, can you imagine this? Now now we're happy. We're, we're walking downstairs. He doesn't have to carry him. He's walking downstairs and says, your son lives. Praise God. God did this. God raises people from the dead. Now, you look in the Bible, tons and tons of people didn't get raised from the dead. Okay? Everyone, didn't get, everyone who died didn't get raised from the dead. But this is the first person in the Bible that got raised from the dead. You've got... a. Uh, a few others. I mean, the list is so short, you can just name them all, okay? The Shunammite's son, 2 Kings chapter 4, raised by Elisha. The man raised when he came into contact with the bones of Elisha in 2 Kings 13. That must have been wild, huh? Widow of Nain's son, raised by Jesus, Luke 7. Jairus' daughter, raised by Jesus, Luke 8. Lazarus, raised by Jesus, Mary and Martha's brother there, Luke, uh, John 11. You've got Peter raising up Dorcas, Acts 9, and you've got Eutychus that's raised by Paul, Acts 20. And, and really, beside that, it's, then there's all the people that got raised from the dead at the resurrection, right? the unnamed people. But basically, there's not a ton, but there are some showing that God is God over all. So he says, your son lives. How does this uh, combat Baal? Well, the Canaanites believed that Baal could revive the dead. Hmm, he didn't. Here is God, not Baal, giving back the boy's life. God's the true God. God's God over all. And so verse 24, the woman says to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God. He's being verified as an authentic prophet of God, the bearer of God's word, by, by a daughter of the very people that he's opposing. And he says, I, she says, I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She's speaking truth here. Jesus himself in John 17, 17 said, thy word is truth. And the emphasis here is not on Elijah here. It's on God's word in Elijah's mouth. Elijah learned the power of God and the power of prayer. And he applied them both in his contest with the Baal prophets in the very next chapter. God is God over all. He's God over all, and as such, he, he displays his power. And there's a reason. This is that we could, that we would trust his provision and that we would, that we would delight in him. We would delight in, in the greatness of God and who he is. God displayed his power through Elijah. You, you can't make miracles happen. Elijah couldn't make miracles happen, but you can ask God. That's what he did. He asked God to make the miracle happen. You can do the same thing. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And we always think that God's going to tell us something that's really going to make us feel good. Sometimes he'll tell you something terrifying. You read his word, it's not all comfort. God speaks through his word. Miracles were displaying God's power through Elijah to the widow here and giving her back her, her son. 
You've got the handful of flour and the little jug of oil can, uh, turning into a continuous supply. You've you got a dead son raised to life. Miracles. Remember what Jesus did. Jesus took a few loaves and some fish and miraculously fed 5,000 and 4,000 men, not counting women and children, upwards to 15 to 20,000 people. And Jesus himself was raised to life. The dead son raised to life. God's displaying his power. And, and he'll do the same in your life as he leads you and guides you and protects you and provides for you. You're not going to get everything you want, but you will get what he wants you to have. Think about the miracles that God has done. Think about just biblically, go, go through the Bible and think about the miracles he's done. If you think about what he did through Moses, and, and, and when he was doing miracles through Moses, he was glorifying himself a, against the false gods of Egypt. And he's doing miracles through Elijah and after him, Elisha, declaring God's supremacy over Baal worship. You think about what, what the miracles God did through Jesus in his earthly ministry and through the apostles to give credence to the gospel message, to, to witness to Christ's coming and substitutionary atonement. He's showing I am God over all through his miracles. And, and by the way, if there's anyone hearing this that says, I still don't believe God does miracles, then you're blind spiritually. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. You think that a, a little flour in a bowl and some oil in a jug is tough for God? When you, when you think of his power, you just contemplate the triune God and how powerful he is. You're, you're not going to question how he could do it. Not unless you think you're God. And remember what Habakkuk learned as we were going through Habakkuk. In, his, in himself, it was just weakness. He, he knew it. He acknowledged it. And, and in the situation he was in, it was bleakness. But in God, greatness. God over all. He's depending on God's provision. And, and this is what Elijah did. He depended on God's provision. God led him. God fed him. Here he is, you know, standing in God's presence. God's letting him stand in his presence. And he's declaring to him his word. Uh, Elijah's believing it. The widow's believing it. They're receiving from God. We've got the risen lad here. And, and God is clearly directing, clearly protecting by his power, even in hiding him and providing for him by the, by the brook until that drew, dried up and the birds bringing him meals. And, and a widow who has nothing is miraculously provided for in order that her and her son and Elijah could eat for a long time. But isn't this an interesting juxtaposition? Here's a pagan widow harboring a faithful fugitive while a sinful, unbelieving king is running amok. A man who should have been a believer is hunting down God's prophet. You've got to depend on God's provision, just like Elijah did, just like the widow did. And sometimes God is going to bring help to you out of the middle of nowhere, seemingly. Here, Elijah is getting help from an unlikely source and hindrance from a not-so-surprising source. But he says, go back to verse 1. He says something that you, you've got to look at here. Because you know, you've got to depend on God's provision. And God's going to provide. But he says an interesting thing. He says, before whom I stand. The living God before whom I stand. Now, he's, taking, he's making a very bold declaration. He's, he's basically saying, I have communion with God. 
I, I have familiarity with God. God knows me and I know him. Uh, I've got God's approval. I actually can stand in his presence and not just you know, be laid low in the dust. I, I have allegiance to God. I'm, I'm his ambassador. Um, I actually have appeal rights. Basically, Elijah's saying, I'm welcome in the presence of God. The Bible tells us that when you come to faith in Christ, you can now stand in the presence of God without fear. You can come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot do that. But what does standing in the presence of God, in the, in the presence of a living God, mean? Shows up on the scene, standing in the presence of a living God. What does that mean? It means he was praying. He was praying. How do we know that? Because go over to James 5. James tells us he was praying. He says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah, now he's talking about Elijah here, was a man with a nature like ours. A sinful man, a human nature, a lot like us. Don't think, oh, Elijah, he's so great. He's someone like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prays again and heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. That's another story for another day. You know, Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. How's your praying? You praying? Prayers of faith? It's according to the power at work within us, to the glory of, of Christ in the church. You know what God's miracles teach us? That God's power has no limits. You know what Elijah was doing when he was praying? And he said, by the way, there's not going to be any rain. He was calling down God's covenant curses of the law on Israel through his prayers. Now, you shouldn't be doing that. But what you should be doing is praying God's promises with great faith you will either be prayerfully dependent on on God's provision or you're going to try to grab everything for yourself and end up with nothing you come to God empty-handed he was going to fill your hands you come to God grabbing and you will go away empty-handed you see here last part of this passage that Elijah and the widow are delighting in God God spoke through Elijah. Pagan woman trusts the one true God, believes his word, while the Israelite king, Ahab, worships pagan idols. But the widow professes faith in God. A Phoenician woman realizes Elijah is speaking the word of God and, and delights in it and the God whose word it is. She's not just delighting in the word of God. It's not just, oh, I'm going to read the word because I like it. It's I'm going to read the word because it's from God. I, I'm going to delight in God as I read the word. This is his word to me. You must delight in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You're, you will be aligned with him. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? They obeyed the word of God here. 
If you delight in God, you will obey his word. If you don't delight in God, you won't obey his word. Delighters in God obey his word. You look at Psalm 119, which is all about the word of God, right? Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The word of God is counseling your, your, your life and your heart and your soul, and you're actually doing what it says. You're listening to your counselors. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Oswald Chambers said the best measure of the spiritual life is not ecstasies, but obedience. William Tyndale, he considered scripture a life-giving treasure, and he gave his life to translate it into English in the 1500s. But he said that the Bible is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a person's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. I don't know what you're doing in your Bible times. You're like, oh, I got to check off the box. I don't want anyone to see that I, I missed a day on my Bible reading plan. Or like, wow, God is so amazing. I'm having fellowship with him, and he's speaking to me in the word, and I'm praying to him, and, and, and we have a relationship. This great God over all who will allow us to be in his presence through faith in Christ. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. It's God over all. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. This is what Elijah was telling him. This is what I'm telling you today. I'm telling myself right now. And God overall displays his power so that we would depend on his provision and that we would delight in him. Did you know that through the miracle of, 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 of a dead person getting raised to life, you've got Elijah as a type of him who was to come, Jesus Christ, who would raise the dead to life? New life in Christ. Have you been raised from the dead by Jesus? Have you, been raised? Have you been raised from the dead? If you're a believer in Jesus, it says that you were dead and God made you alive. The dead son took your place and was raised to life over 2,000 years ago. Died on the cross as a substitute in the place of lost sinners to pay for their sins. And he was buried and he rose from the dead and he's coming back. The living word, he breathes life into the dead and he, he showers you with saving grace and redeeming mercy and unfailing love. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins and God's wrath against sin. And when you do, your sins are covered, you're secure in him, you're safe in Christ forever. You are loved, you're forgiven, you're kept you're made right with God, all by God's doing, because he is God over all. You're risen a new life in Christ. I think of the example of Augustine in the year 386. He found freedom from lust and lechery and the superior pleasures of God. Here's what he said. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys with which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all. 
If you come to Christ, Christ changes you. Or else you haven't come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The same Augustine, before he was saved, he lived an immoral life, especially with this one woman. And after his conversion, they passed each other in town on the street. And she says to Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he answers her, yes, but it is not I. Harry Ironside had a Christian friend who would fly off the handle and lose his temper. And the only way his anger could be checked was if someone would look at him and say, is that old George or new George speaking? And tears would come to his eyes and he would say, that's old George. New George would never talk like that. You feel like you have no strength, no resources, no status in the world, like you're at the bottom rung of society's ladder. I want you to remember that God can use people with no resources. And if you think you're pretty special stuff, and you are quite impressed with yourself and your accomplishments, I think that God may have something startling and maybe even shocking to say to you out of this chapter. I came across this quote this morning by Carl Henry. Divine revelation palpitates with human surprise like a fiery bolt of lightning that unexpectedly zooms toward us and scores a direct hit. Like an earthquake that suddenly shakes and engulfs us, it somersaults our private thoughts to abrupt awareness of ultimate destiny. But the unannounced intrusion of its, by the unannounced intrusion of its omnipotent actuality, divine revelation lifts the present into the eternal and unmasks our pretensions of human omnipotence. You will either trust yourself or you will trust pagan idols or you will trust the one true God who is God over all. Lord, we thank you that you bring the dead to life. Thank you, Lord, that even as nations are maneuvering the globe and angling towards a showdown, we as believers can live without fear because you are God over all. You made the globe, and you display your power, your sovereignty, your authority, and we, by your grace, can depend on your provision, and we can delight in you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.